talking about betrayed partners or partners and you know their level of exposure you know you said most of us are like no thanks right they're more of the the what I call wind survivors more of an avoidant like ah you know what I just want this all to go away um you know let's speak to that a little bit um in terms of what consent they're allowed to give to how much information they receive yeah so there are people who feel like they either have the whole story and they don't need to rehash some of that. Mm -hmm. um, that's valid. There are people who have been betrayed and feel like they just don't want to know because it's, uh, you know, essentially what I think is going on there is they're facing barriers in their life that would disable them from being able to leave or emotionally detach from the person. And yeah. so in order to continue life somewhat as normal they can't know more bad things right uh, because it becomes unsustainable to continue staying with somebody who you know you know has has certain things um going on or or that were occurring um i think sometimes you know just interfacing with the the depth and breadth to which we've been you know betrayed and lied to manipulated uh in some cases coerced or had control and power used against us, that is a revelation that is really hard to deal with, especially in the midst of not having support or already being overwhelmed. Uh, so I would never prescribe that any time is the right time for a disclosure. I would never prescribe that everyone must go through it, but I believe in it as yeah. the most hearty and helpful intervention uh, yeah. that should be considered if you are in a relationship and looking to see if trust is possible to rebuild. It's a way to start a fresh threshold for trust to build upon. Good. I love that. I think I, I completely agree. And I often will reassure partners who are in that position. And I love that you brought up the barriers. That's like, look, I genuinely am not in a position to leave, whether that's financial, physical, social, whatever the situation may be. And getting more information is, it may put me in a position where I want to leave and I and I will feel even more trapped, right? Um, and something that I reassure people and, and invite them to pursue gently, right? And say, you know, maybe you still make a request of your partner to do this full therapeutic disclosure. Um, and at the beginning, you just say, I don't want to know. And maybe over time, you can just get the bare bones, right? Just, just the bare minimum of what are the top five behaviors I need to know or something just for your own, especially physical safety. Yeah, so, so you, so consent and your consent to information and how much you bring in and that self boundary, um, respect that self boundary of I, what information you want to let in, um, mm -hmm. and, and advocate for yourself. You can still seek a full therapeutic disclosure and polygraph while advocating for your desire to know or not know, um, over the course of time. So yeah. I love how you said that as well. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about, or a lot of it about polygraphs. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Let's polygraph. talk about polygraphs. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the bad. Okay. Cause, uh, sometimes if we don't do that enough, we sound like we're just like in polygraph heaven and, and, you know, that'll be a little misleading too. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's mm -hmm. perfect. The polygraph's the solution. Uh -huh. Listen, there is a difference between a good and a bad polygraph examiner. I believe. Pray to the men. 
Yeah, <laughs> I believe that um, I have, you know, the best, one of the best in the world. He tends to be the trainer of many polygraph examiners here in the U.S. And um, he's worked with the FBI. I mean, this guy even looks like, you know, kind of like an FBI guy. And so uh-huh. um, polygrapher too. Yeah, not that that matters, although it can help. It helps. Serious environment for the yeah, intervention. It helps. Uh, but not all polygraphers are good at this. Not all polygraphers understand that we're not necessarily working with a criminal investigation, uh, that we're working with a truth, uh, a, a truth intervention between intimate partners. And so there's a certain kind of demeanor and countenance that a, a good polygrapher understands and approaches this with. Not all polygraphers will do a global scale or a certain style of, of polygraph that would allow for us to ask questions such as, are you deliberately keeping secrets from your wife at this time? Right. Uh, there's different styles of polygraph, different styles of examiner. And it's true that, you know, these aren't admissible in court. That's what everyone wants to talk about is how if polygraphs were accurate, then we'd use them in court. Well, yeah, you can't enter a polygraph result into the evidence of a, of a trial. Uh, but you better believe they use polygraphs in the court system. I mean, right. that's what my polygraph examiner does most of his time. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> they're incredibly important when done right and when done well. And the way I use it is very different than other folks. Um, at times, I, I see value in different approaches here, but I'll share mine. Yeah. And my approach is that I, I do not do a polygraph before the disclosure. And the reason oh, it's different. That, yeah. Yeah. That's specific because. Before the disclosure, the partner hasn't been given the rest of the information in order to Mm. synthesize that information and generate questions about it. I want her questions covered on the polygraph. So I'll do a polygraph afterward that includes the full process of the disclosure, which in my three-day intensive is a day and a half long. And Mm -hmm. so that covers everything from what he read in his disclosure document to everything he responded to regarding her questions and my questions, and even the interview that the polygraph examiner conducts ahead of hooking him up to all the Mm -hmm. polygraph chair stuff, uh, all of that gets covered by the exam. And then, um, you know, we're able to, to feel like, you know, what's being covered then is relevant to the the most recent disclosure and the totality. Furthermore, I have the partners uh, share with me any remaining concerns. And I'm also notating my own concerns regarding areas that may not have been thorough uh, from Mm. the disclosure's point of view. And this all gets put into the interview. My examiner will then, you know, conduct a really hardcore interview around the things that still seem like an open case to the partner or right. or even potentially to me. And then the partner is also involved in writing the relevant questions or the questions that are measured when they're conducting the charts of the polygraph. I think those are really important elements because if the partner's not involved at that level, how can he or she know that the exam is indeed covering the areas of All concern that are important to them? Because you could go take a polygraph and the, the relevant questions could be, hey, is your favorite color blue or red? You know, I mean, that's right. a correctly, <laughs> forensically worded question. But the idea is we want to make sure it's covering what matters to the partner. Right, right. I love that. And I think that the way you're describing that would alleviate a lot of the heartache that I've seen come from polygraph experiences that I've heard, right? Because you probably do hear and I hear some of those negative experience with polygraphs. So that's interesting. So the, the way that I've 
been trained to do it and historically done it. I'm a therapy sabbatical right now, but um, so just to give everyone a different perspective is oftentimes he'll fit the, the betraying partner will finish the disclosure, the document, go to the polygrapher, get a pass or a fail. And if it's a pass, then they're then permitted to read that to the betrayed partner. But I also, in, in, in the sense of, you know, we're going to make sure what he's actually sharing with her the first time is full and accurate and honest. But, um, but I could see the, the value in doing it the way that you're describing, because then it gives her more information to ask more questions before the polygraph right. um, occurs. So I think that uh, there's different methods. Like we said at the very beginning, every clinician is going to use different methods. And, and just because we're not doing it Hope's way, we're not doing it Kaylee's way, doesn't mean it's not the right way, as long as the person you're working with and the polygrapher you're working with is trained and understands um, sexual betrayal, right? So you want to, well, people always ask, well, where do I find a polygrapher? Like, well, you're finding a therapist who knows a polygrapher. That's how you're finding a polygrapher. And then your therapist is going to have that connection with someone. Um, I would say another downside to polygraph, I know we're kind of doing the negatives, but but also some of the positives here. Um, and it's maybe not really a downside as much as something to be aware of. Um, and I used to actually be against polygraphs. Oh, like, I didn't know that. Probably like six years ago, seven years ago. And my reasoning behind that was that I had met with many people who had lost complete touch with their inner polygraph mm -hmm. because of the polygraph and the disclosure system, um, uh, experience. So they had had such a positive polygraph and disclosure experience, which is a good thing, that they really didn't even do any, bring any attention to their own self, their mm -hmm. own intuition. And um, I'm now I'm like, let's do the polygraph and let's do follow up every year, right? Like I'm I'm game if that's what you want to do for your for your for your marriage, right? I'm game for supporting that because I've seen it become so beneficial. With a caveat, just don't let the mechanical polygraph become more important than your internal polygraph. And mm -hmm. the reason I say this is I've just met with many women who've gotten a clean polygraph even several years in a row, but their partner has emotionally abusive behaviors mm -hmm. um, or they have these just kind of these, maybe it's not full deception anymore, but there's still these kind of type of abusive, it's unhealthy or there's a, there's a exploitation of labor going on. There's, there's other relational issues and because the polygraph keeps coming back clean, they're like, well, yeah. <laughs> I got to stay with them. And they kind of mm -hmm. tie that clean polygraph to I'm staying in my marriage. And I'm not saying these women needed to leave and I have this strong desire for them to leave the relationship. I'm not necessarily saying that, but make sure that you're staying tuned to that inner survivor that's throwing flags, even if it's not necessarily betrayal related or deception related, because there are many other things that might require boundaries and requests mm -hmm. and navigation of of the relationship that you need that inner polygraph your whole life and not mm. just with your partner but with everybody else too and that this instance of betrayal is is a really um oh I hate saying like opportunity because it always is cringy and and no this sucks and should never happen to you and you're really pushed into this place. You can be pushed into this place of really honing that inner polygraph, mm -hmm. really honing those um, cheater detectors that we all are inborn with, that most of us kind of lose touch because we're like, ah, Google will tell me. We lose touch of these evolutionary um, things that we have. And so through this process of betrayal uh, healing, we can hone that. And so that's my only 
caveat soapbox with polygraphs is don't lose touch with that and make sure you put in that time and energy to hone that inner inner polygraph. Gosh, Kaylee, you have such a way of identifying things systematically. I know that's the systems person in you. The <laughs> yeah. ability to think. Social worker. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I would just also add that I think I think this idea of people saying, well, he's passing a polygraph um, is in part due and then thinking that that's all they really need, you know, to progress in building safety and trust. I think is is in large part due to the failure of our current field of psychology that says uh, that all we really need to have a good relationship is that he needs he or she needs to stop that sexual acting out or that right. yep. sex stuff. Uh, and so you know once recovery is had, then somehow that magically fixes things. But there's a whole another aspect to the behavior uh, that coincides with that secret sex life. And that would be the deception, the persuasion, the exploitation stuff that we talk about together. And uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> if that's not also rehabilitated, you know, then there's very low chances of a satisfying marriage or, or a marriage that was better than it was before. There's just yeah. somebody who's now come up to ground level. Listen, the other partner was already not cheating in most cases, was already being faithful. And now we've got both partners there that doesn't undo or fix uh, or repair all the damage that came when one partner was living below ground with their sexual secrets. So exactly. Yeah. Our field, our field, and um, you know, this is part of my mission is really just making sure people understand there's really two parts here that need to be addressed. Recovery for the sexual secrets is one thing. And the second thing is rehabilitation for the abusive, you know, yeah, evasive, deceptive, behavior. Right, exactly. And I think historically, and gratefully, there was someone out there talking right in the history. So we can have that gratitude for our forefathers and our foremothers in this field. Mm -hmm. um, but historically, it was kind of like therapeutic disclosure, po now polygraph, and then you're on your way. Bye. Have a great yeah. life, you know, yeah. um, but that is one half. And so, of course, now, 15 years later, 20, 25 years later, we have people that are pretty disenfranchised with some of that mm -hmm. for good reason and for good cause. And so it's to say this is one component of the overall thing. I will say, I think the disclosure in the process, if used in a way that if used in the right way, can be a healing for that um, that component, that second component, the rehabilitation. So can you speak yep. a little bit to how if done well, and this is something you can request of a therapist, right? Like, how do you do this, right? If you're doing disclosures, yeah. how are you doing this? But speak to us a little bit, Hope, about how can the disclosure process aid in that rehabilitation? So not just quitting the betraying behaviors, which yes, that has to happen, but also that abusive behavior and communication. Yeah. How does well, that help okay. with that process? That's like the best question ever. Um, we could talk for a long time <laughs> short. I guess here's the main thing to rehabilitate the abusive behavior that coincides with keeping a secret sex life. You have to dissolve a power differential. The deference of knowledge that you've held over your partner must be dissolved in order for there to be equity and for your partner to be able to accurately assess their own safety and well being in the relationship. They need to have all the knowledge they need to do that, which means no more secrets really of any kind, but particularly around things that affect their safety and well being, like your sexuality, what you're doing with the finances, all those types of things. If you're in legal yeah. trouble or got fired from work and haven't even talked about it because you know, you're keeping a secret life. 
So in order to dissolve that power differential, the truth must be told. The story has yeah. to be told. And a lot of people who are in the position to have to give a disclosure, they question that, you know, aren't we just creating more pain? My partner's already been through more pain. But the intervention is really an honesty overhaul that dissolves or gives the opportunity, if done right, right. to dissolve the power differential. So it's I look at disclosure as actually more of an intervention of rehabilitation than of sexual sobriety. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a blend, you know, because sure. in order to uh, do a disclosure, you know, it, a lot of people are in some level of recovery at that point and, yeah. and they have found ways to stop their secret sex life, but not always is somebody way far down the road. I really don't believe in readiness to do a disclosure so much as I believe in willingness. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are some therapists who will require a, a certain period of sexual sobriety, or they'll require certain level of insights and recovery knowledge in order to do that. But recovery knowledge is really much more for the person struggling with that sex stuff. And I call it sex stuff because it's not always a sex addiction. In many cases, right. it could be, but they're, they need to be able to, in order to attend to the relationship, uh, be able to give a full account of the story. Yeah. And that's what helps or begins to dissolve the power differential. Yep. Yep. I love that. And, and for me, in addition to that, right, that leveling out of the playing field that then provides that shift in power and control. It's kind yeah. of what you're saying. In addition to that, I think that, um, it can be an opportunity for a person to, um, like your, your, and this is maybe less with the intensive and more with the ongoing therapy afterwards that you might do for me. I do it kind of blended in with the disclosure, mm -hmm. which is um, as we're going, guess what's on digging up? We're digging up trauma after trauma after trauma, and we're reprocessing those traumas as we go. So that rather than I can't even talk about this event, um, I can have a regulated conversation about what happened to me here and here and here. And not in a way, like you said, it's not necessarily that the disclosure is one of listen to my bad life and how hard it was for me but there are events that are traumatic like first exposure to pornography is often traumatic to the nervous system of a young child and mm -hmm. so sometimes those kind of events will reprocess and we'll see that have that trickle down effect of more empathy less shame um, also shame is going to be depleted just in the intervention of full honesty right if we bring sh uh, honest we bring things into the light, then we have shame dispersed. So there's so many parts to that process that can be really healing and transformative um, that includes into that rehabilitation as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so awesome. Okay. I, I did have one last question. I know we're, we're about to run out of time. If you guys are here live and you have questions, I see a couple of people commenting. If you have questions, drop them below. We're going to get to those in a minute. Um, but my last question is when would be a good time? I mean, you kind of touched on this already. Um, when, when do we do the disclosure? Mm -hmm. Well, when, uh, so I have a, a, a term that I use called reality collapse, which is, um, part of the experience a partner goes through when they have sufficient information to understand how endangered they were by their partner, whether that's physically endangered because their partner was exposed to STIs or financially endangered or just emotionally and psychologically endangered mm -hmm. as they continued giving wholeheartedly to a relationship where there was tremendous uh, subterfuge and um, betrayal occurring yeah. in a hidden way. 
even if they knew some of what was occurring, they wouldn't have known the whole picture. And so uh, once reality collapse hits, that's when uh, a partner really recognizes I'm in a one down position. And uh, this is where we can begin to really put words to our own victimization. And it's, it's hard to use the word victim. It's hard to use the word betrayal violence, especially when there isn't necessarily black eyes and bruises or even coercive control may not be a part of this, but the uh, evasive maneuvering of your, your partner's reality to keep them from knowing things they need to know as they continue bonding and attaching to you, that is violence. And it's Mm -hmm. violence for a lot of reasons. We could talk more about that, but the point is when somebody hits that place and they say, oh my gosh, this is bad. They have sufficient information, even if it's not the whole, they don't know everything, every acting out incident or every style of acting out, but they know enough to say, wow, this is much worse than I thought it was. It's much more serious. It's much more pervasive. Um, It's been going on, you know, for a long, longer time, maybe than I thought, whatever kind of information that gets them to the place where their reality collapses. And they say, this is no longer sustainable for me. That's when it becomes important to get to disclosure in most cases quite quickly. And that's why I like running a three-day intensive because that intensive allows us to really house that and prepare for it uh, intensively and make it happen sometimes sooner than you can do, you know, in other settings like outpatient. But Mm -hmm. outpatient disclosures are equally valid and useful in certain other scenarios as well. Yeah. I think there's something really compassionate about an intensive disclosure toward the complex partner trauma partner, right? The person who's been betrayed because of that timeline. I know that it's, it can be so painful, confusing and heartbreaking to have an extended three to six months waiting time. Um, I always do like a little mini disclosure type thing at the beginning, just because it's so, I'm like, you need some basics to decide if you want to stick it out for the next six months. Right. Um, But I I think that there's a lot of compassionate, compassion to that concept. So I love that that you offer that. Um, And, and I agree, right. That at that reality collapse, I call it surrender and support. It's that moment of like, I can't do this anymore by myself, right? Like, like that recognition of I'm not safe. This, this is actually really bad. And I've got to, I've got to seek support elsewhere. Um, is a good moment, right? That reality collapse. And that's where, you know, a lot of times people have already heard of disclosure, been asking for a disclosure, but once reality collapse really hits, that's when it's like, if I don't get this by a certain time, I don't know if I can. Yeah. 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 Okay. Hope, thank you so much for all of this amazing information that you're willing to come and provide your time and your uh, energy and, and share with our community here.